Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Colossians chapter 2. As we will look this evening at verses 11 and 12. And before reading, let us go to the Lord in prayer, asking for his blessing. O great God of heaven, you are great and greatly to be praised. We ask now that you would be near to us, that you would dwell in this assembly, that you would dwell in our midst, that Jesus Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, and that this assembly would be a foretaste of the service of worship that will be ours when Jesus Christ shall return and bring us into glorified worship of the triune God. Be near to us and fix our eyes upon him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Amen. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here in verses 11 and 12, Paul is continuing his train of thought from verses 9 and 10. As we read there, Paul is unpacking the fullness of Jesus Christ. And especially as John speaks of that fullness, we have received from his fullness grace upon grace, John 1 verse 16. As Paul talks about the fullness of accomplished redemption in Jesus Christ, he goes on in chapter 2 to unpack more of that fullness for the church. He moves on there, as we saw last time in verse 11, unpacking more of Christ's fullness of grace, that main thought in verse 11, you were circumcised in Christ. We saw last time that circumcision symbolizes covenant curse as well as covenant consecration. This is where circumcision presents sinners with an impossible problem. Any sinner who would consecrate himself to God can do so only by coming under the knife of God's full judgment. That is what circumcision symbolizes. Thankfully, what is impossible with man is possible with God. No sinner can come under the blade of God's judgment and then successfully pass through that judgment onto living consecration unto God. No one can live unto God's service after being condemned to death for his sin. Thankfully, the death and resurrection of Christ resolves this impossible problem for us. In his death, he took our curse upon himself and was condemned to death in our place. And in his resurrection, he brings us through death and curse and condemnation to life and blessing instead. This true and ultimate heavenly significance of circumcision 
is for all believers, as we saw last time. It is for Jew and Gentile, for male and female, for the entire kingdom of God in the work of Jesus Christ. And as if that were not amazing enough, Paul moves on from the heavenly significance of circumcision to the similar heavenly significance of baptism here in verse 12. Verses 11 and 12 being connected, you were circumcised, in verse 11, is the main verb here. And now moving to verse 12, we have a statement that modifies that verb, having been buried with him in baptism. So this spiritual, this multifaceted spiritual reality, circumcision from one angle, baptism from another angle, these two things, circumcision and baptism, are so intimately connected because we receive both of these things in union with Jesus Christ. Did you notice as we read this evening, the repetition of in him from verses 9 to 11, in him you've received fullness, in him you were circumcised, and as we come now to verse 12, unpacking more of the fullness that is yours in him by faith, we see first of all, union with Christ in his death, union with Christ in his death. That's in the beginning of verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. The sequence from verses 11 to 12 is striking. We don't have a sort of generic union with Jesus Christ. Rather, we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection from the dead. Each phase in the life of our Savior is of significance, of eternal significance for his people. And as we look more into, peering more into this glorious reality of union with Jesus Christ— to be in him, as Paul puts it here, we notice something amazing. Not only was the death and resurrection of Christ for us, but we also died with him and were raised with him in his death and resurrection. We'll hear more about this later. Paul is able to move on from the heavenly significance of circumcision, verse 11, to the heavenly significance of baptism, in verse 12, because they get at the same reality in slightly different ways. We saw last time that circumcision is oriented toward heaven because anyone who would eat of the tree of life and pass into heavenly glory must first come under what was surrounding the tree of life, the flaming sword of God's judgment. That is what the angels guard the tree with in Genesis 3.24. But thankfully, later on in Genesis 15, we see God's promise that he will take the curse-bearing upon himself for his people. That is the background of circumcision when God institutes it for Abraham in Genesis 17. Baptism has that same significance, that same orientation toward heaven, a new realm where man can dwell with God in consecration and worship. Now, as we speak about baptism in relation to circumcision, it's good for us to, to re remember that in the history of redemption, there are at least three events that the Bible calls baptisms, all these in, in ways showing us the heavenly significance of baptism. So within this first main point, baptism number one is Noah's flood. Think of how Peter talks about this in 1 Peter 3, how God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared 
in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now briefly, Peter shows there that the background of Christian baptism is the judgment waters in Noah's day. In one instance of water judgment, God's people were saved, Noah and his family, and God's enemies were condemned to death, the rest of the world. By identifying with God and following him, Noah and his family passed through the judgment waters, but by rebelling against God, the rest of the world came under the judgment waters in condemnation. And once that event was finished, Noah and his family were brought into a new realm. Think of the, of the creation, the new creation language that God gives in Genesis 9. They were brought into a new realm to enter into God's presence in his mountain dwelling on Ararat, offering him the sacrifice of praise free from enemy threat. That's one baptism. Baptism number two, the crossing of the Red Sea. Paul makes this, this explicit in 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Very similar to to Noah's flood, Paul shows that the significance of Israel's crossing the Red Sea must be communicated in the monumental shift that takes place in a baptism. In one instance of a water judgment, God's people were saved and God's enemies were condemned. Israel was set free from bondage in Egypt and they were freed from the threat of being taken back to bondage by the pursuing armies of Pharaoh. God's people were saved and the enemies of God were condemned as the Egyptians drowned while the Israelites passed through on dry land. By God's discriminating grace, Moses and the Israelites passed through the judgment waters, but because of the satanic hardness of heart of Pharaoh, the Egyptians came under the judgment waters. And like unto Noah's, in, in Noah's day, once this event was finished, Israel was brought into a new realm to enter into God's presence in his mountain dwelling at Sinai, offering him the sacrifice of praise free from enemy threat. That's the second baptism. The third baptism in the history of redemption is the atoning death of Christ. Listen how Jesus talks about his upcoming death in Luke chapter 12. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you hear our Lord Jesus Christ anticipating the horror of the outpouring of God's wrath upon him on the cross as he is filled with distress? Like the world in Noah's day, like the Egyptians in Moses' day, Jesus Christ is about to be identified by God as an enemy of God and condemned to death. 
What we saw last time, as Paul calls the death of Christ his circumcision, recounting the language of Isaiah 53, how Christ was cut off out of the land of the living, Christ himself also calls his death a baptism, as he will come under the fire of God's wrath in place of sinners. Do you see how Scripture speaks of the same thing in these two ways? The death of Christ being, from one angle, his circumcision, and from another, his baptism. But praise God that out of this judgment baptism will come the outpouring of blessing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is out of the curse-bearing of Christ that comes blessing for those united to him. Out of Christ's passing through the hell of God's wrath upon earth comes our passing into heavenly blessing in Christ. And think of the, what this brings us into, the realm this brings us into. Noah worshiped God on Mount Ararat. Israel worshiped God at Mount Sinai. But in Jesus Christ, we come to an otherworldly mountain, to God's presence in Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem above. We're already in God's presence in heaven itself, not in any earthly copy or type, because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And at the risk of confusion, combining these metaphors of judgment— circumcision and baptism, as they do come together in Scripture. As Jesus came under the fire baptism of God's wrath, that is connected to the flaming sword surrounding entrance to the tree of life. That is why when we come to the tree of life in Revelation 22, at the very end of history, there's nothing surrounding it. There is no judgment to enter into first, to come under first, before coming to the heavenly blessing signified in the tree of life. Why is there no flaming sword surrounding this tree? Because Jesus Christ came under that flaming sword in his vicarious death for us upon the cross. This tree in Revelation 22 is enlarged. It is on either side of the river of life. It bears fruit incessantly, offering healing to the nations, using this earthly imagery to communicate heavenly blessing in this otherworldly tree, the heavenly blessing that is ours in Jesus Christ, the heavenly blessing signified and sealed in baptism. All of this shows, as we begin here in verse 12, as we, as we see in verse 12, that we have been buried with Christ in baptism that Christ's death is our death, and we died with him when he died. Union with Christ in his death means that his curse-bearing death removes our condemnation. And so even though believers still die, it is out of God's love setting us free from all the miseries of this life to bring us immediately into the presence of God in heaven, and there is no more curse or sting attached to death because of our union with Jesus Christ in his death. We are no longer condemned because out of Christ's curse-bearing death comes blessing instead.
That leads us, secondly, to see union with Christ in his resurrection. Union with Christ in his resurrection. That's the next phrase in verse 12. In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. Focusing there on you were also raised with him. So we see that resurrection, as it is translated here in verse 12, is what we would call past tense or a completed tense. Do you see how it it says there in verse 12, you were also raised with Christ, something that has already happened. So the resurrection for you believer, now in, in these last days, now that Christ has been raised from the dead, resurrection is something that has already begun for you. The New Testament frequently speaks of a past resurrection for the believer. We see it already here in in verse 12. Lord willing, next time we'll see it in verse 13. Uh, Go down a little bit to to chapter 3. Look there in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, again, completed action, leading to the command, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Resurrection is already a reality for the Christian. It is something that has already taken place in the past. Think also of the more more sustained argument that Paul makes in Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They're again showing that Christ's death and resurrection was not only for us, but we experienced it in and with him. And did you hear there in Ephesians 2 how union with Christ and his resurrection also includes ascension with him into heaven so that we do not come into the earthly presence of God in a tabernacle through a sinful priest occasionally. We come into the heavenly tabernacle dwelling of God in the sinless high priest incessantly to offer a sacrifice of praise with our entire lives. We are raised with Christ and seated in heaven with Christ. Think also of of past resurrection in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There in Romans 6, Paul takes pains to unpack the significance of union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, answering that question, shall we sin so that grace may abound? That is an utter impossibility for the Christian to contemplate because union with Christ in his death and resurrection 
cuts us off from sin's enslaving power and brings us into a new realm, a new way of life. And what he says in Romans 6, 4 is newness of life. We have died to sin, are no longer under its enslaving power, union with him in his death, and union with him in his resurrection. We have been made alive to God, set free to glorify and enjoy him in newness of life. And just as Christ himself is raised from the dead, never to die again, so also the believer in him is raised from the dead, never to die again. Also in Galatians 2, past resurrection. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There, at least in, in context in Galatians 2, our death to the law means life to God. The law no longer has condemning power over us. It is not the, it is not the power over us that condemns us or forces us to keep it in full, to earn righteousness with God. We have died to the law being united to Jesus Christ in his resurrection as he is the one who fulfilled the law for us and gives us his righteousness that we may meet God unafraid. Also in Philippians chapter 3, past resurrection for the, for the Christian. As Paul talks about the overwhelming superiority and significance of knowing Christ and gaining Christ, he says there in verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Richard Gaffin points out that the order there is not what we would expect. We do not identify with Jesus Christ in suffering, death, and then resurrection. It is rather we now know the power of his resurrection and then have fellowship with him in his sufferings. So the order there is, we know resurrection life now in Christ, in the inner man, to then walk through this life having the fellowship of his sufferings. That cuts at the root any sort of triumphalism, any sort of taking over the culture, any sort of of false gospel of of no more suffering for the Christian. It is deeper and more glorious for the Christian that you have resurrection life in Jesus Christ to then experience all the miseries of this life in a profoundly greater way as the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to him. It is that resurrection power that is at work in the believer, making our sufferings to have eternal, heaven-oriented value. That's what Paul himself came to learn in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember that, that thorn in the flesh that Paul had and prayed constantly for Christ to remove it from him. What was Christ's response? He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, 
insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul learned that in the overwhelming weakness of our frail condition, that is where the power of Jesus Christ is manifest and brought to perfection so that, at least in part, it is abundantly obvious that all the glory belongs to Him and not to us, to our own ingenuity or cleverness. To summarize all this, as, as Richard Gaffin puts it, this glorious teaching of how resurrection is already true of the believer. Listen to how Gaffin summarizes this. At the core of their being, in the deepest recesses of who they are, believers will never be more resurrected than they already are. And so that shows us how when we finally do come to what is not yet, when we come to bodily resurrection, that will merely, we could say, advisedly, that will merely be the open and public manifestation of the resurrection life that we already have now in Jesus Christ. It will be made manifest bodily what is already true of us inwardly. So again, we see that this comes in union with Jesus Christ. Verse 12, in which you were also raised with him. Not only was his resurrection for me, but I was raised with him. Because the principle is this, as goes Christ, so goes the Christian. That leads us thirdly to see union with Christ by faith. Union with Christ by faith. That's the next portion of verse 12. Through faith in the powerful working of God. So how do all these things come to be received by us? How do we have ownership of all these glorious things? Is it by being baptized? By coming under the, the water, the, the sacrament of water baptism? No, it's very clear there in verse 12, through faith. That, that explains, if you, were, if you were wondering, why the, the rest of the history of Noah's family is rather bleak. There was, there was great curse pronounced in Noah's family. Or in Israel, how, how, how tens of thousands of them fell in unbelief after experiencing the reality of their baptisms in the history of redemption. Whether it was Noah's son or whether it was the Israelites who fell because of unbelief, that's the point. Those who were cursed did not receive what was displayed to them through faith. They witnessed it. They, in some sense, experienced it as part, being part of God's people, but they did not truly and vitally take hold of it through faith. They hardened their hearts and rejected it in unbelief. This, this points up the, the significance of, of faith as, as Paul talks about it with respect to circumcision in, Hebrew, in Romans chapter 4. Romans 4.11, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. 
So do you, do you hear there, as Paul unpacks the significance of the sacrament of circumcision, Abraham was not justified by circumcision. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Physical circumcision did not save Abraham or the Pharisees any more than water baptism saves you or me today. Think of the thief on the cross. Without ever receiving baptism or the Lord's Supper or church membership or any of the, of the means of grace, fellowship with believers, anything, he truly believed and was truly converted. Luke 23, after this believing thief rebuked those who mocked Jesus, he turned to Jesus and said, in true childlike faith, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you remember how Jesus responded to him? Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. No sacrament, no use of the means of grace, but true childlike faith existed in this in this dying thief, and he was truly converted. Romans 4 makes clear that the sacrament of circumcision was a sign and seal of the God-approved, God-given righteousness, which, re- which is received only by faith in God's promise. Circumcision was not Abraham's profession of faith. It was not his testimony of anything about him, It was not a man-to-God sign. It was a sign and seal of what God provides. It was a God-to-man sign. And the same thing is true, as you see Paul here relates these things. The same is true of the sacrament of baptism today. You must receive what is signified and sealed in your water baptism through faith. The spiritual reality of circumcision, baptism, as they're related, this spiritual reality that we've been talking about here, blessing through curse-bearing, resurrection life from death, withstanding the judgment of God and successfully passing that judgment, entering into a new realm of worship and consecration unto God, these spiritual realities of circumcision and baptism are not received by physical circumcision or water baptism. They are received through faith. They are received through faith even if you don't receive the sacraments that signify and seal them, like the thief on the cross, like Rahab herself in the era of circumcision. Shorter Catechism 86, showing us what this faith is. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Not believing true things about Christ, even the, the evil one himself does this. James 2, even the demons believe and tremble. That kind of faith does you no good. This is a personal receiving and resting upon him as Savior and Lord. This is, in Isaiah's language, taking hold of him, depending solely upon him 
for the God-approved righteousness that you could never produce, but is yours in fullness and abundance in Jesus Christ. This faith in particular here in verse 12 has reference to the working, translated the powerful working of God. This, at the very least, brings into, into focus that newness of life given to the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel's prophecy. As the, the valley of dry bones, they in themselves dead and impotent to change their status and condition, God the Holy Spirit, as He did in the first creation, must breathe new life into what is dead, and so He must bring your stony heart out from you and bring you a new living heart that is oriented toward Him in love and consecration and devotion. This is the work of union with Jesus Christ in our effectual calling. Recall the definition of this in Shorter Catechism 31. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the gospel. So, what we see here in this part of verse 12 is that when you, through faith, apprehend the glories of the fullness of grace in Jesus Christ, you experience, now in the inner man, the powerful working of God. You are apprehended for yourself, and you are transferred out of this sin-cursed realm to be a citizen of God's heavenly kingdom, awaiting the fullness of that kingdom when we see Jesus Christ face to face and are made like Him. Fourthly and finally, we see faith in God's resurrection power. As Paul concludes verse 12, speaking of God who raised Him from the dead. This is who our God is. He is the God who raises the dead. He works otherworldly power in this sin-cursed world of death, signifying that the kingdom has come, as we've heard these last few Sunday mornings. Think again of the, of the life of Abraham. How in the world was Abraham to believe that God would bless all the families of the earth through him when his own body was as good as dead and Sarah's womb was barren? Would Abraham have to figure out how to get God's promises in motion toward fulfillment? Was it up to him? How was this going to happen? Answer, Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Romans 4.17 And so on the order of creation... God calling all things into existence out of nothing by the word of His power. And on the order of saying, Lazarus, come forth, and bringing physical life from physical death. It is that same kind of otherworldly power that you in no sense can produce in yourself that must bring you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son of giving you a new heart with new desires, depend upon this God who raises the dead, and you will know resurrection power now and the fullness of that resurrection power at the blessed return of Jesus Christ. 
This is who our God is, believer. He is the one, Ephesians 3.20, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power, the resurrection power at work within us. So in conclusion, we see what the reality, the significance of baptism is. Judgment curse unto blessing. Baptism calls you to receive the curse-bearing work of the Redeemer, he who was baptized under the wrath of God, that you may receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what is and it is all these things and more that is signified and sealed to you in your water baptism. It is a sign and seal of union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, as he was the one who experienced the judgment curse for us. We pass through divine judgment unto heavenly blessing in him. And as we've been talking here about this spiritual reality of of baptism, we need to talk about how this reality is signified and sealed more in the sacrament of water baptism. That brings us to to think of the deep and, and penetrating words of larger catechism 167. Listen to this catechism answer. How is baptism to be improved by us? The needful but much neglected duty of improving our baptism is to be performed by us all our life long, especially in the time of temptation and and when we are present at the administration of it to others. By serious and thankful consideration of the nature of it and of the ends for which Christ instituted it, the privileges and benefits conferred and sealed thereby, and our solemn vow made therein. By being humbled for our sinful defilement, our falling short of and walking contrary to the grace of baptism and our engagements, by growing up to assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and quickening of grace, and by endeavoring to live by faith, to have our conversation in holiness and righteousness as those that have therein given up their names to Christ, and to walk in brotherly love as being baptized by the same Spirit into one body. Now there is more there than we can unpack now. You must go and meditate upon that for yourself. But at the very least, what is signified and sealed in the sacrament of baptism, at the very least, is that you are not your own, but belong to Jesus Christ, who is signified and sealed in that sacrament. It's like, it's like Luther talked about. Luther did not say, I was baptized. He spoke in terms of, I am baptized. Luther saw that At the very least, baptism shows that I have a new identity. I belong to God and Jesus Christ, and I am not my own. It'd be like saying, I was married, versus saying, I am married. July 7, 2012, yes, I was married, but I continue to be so. Right? Right. It brings in a new condition a new identity, a new state of affairs, you are, you are now, you continue to be this. 
Not you got moistened when you were a baby. This now is a new identity, identity that you must take hold of by faith and live out consistently. As Sinclair Ferguson puts it, throughout the whole of our Christian lives, our baptism points us to Christ and to all the blessings faith finds in him. It is a perpetual reminder of Christ's grace and a summons to an entire life of trust and obedience. This is what the heavenly significance of baptism compels us to be who we are. As you have received Christ, so walk in him. As you have been marked by him as his disciple, follow him and learn his ways. As you are a sheep in the care of the great shepherd, trust in him and fear no evil, not even in the valley of the shadow of death. As he suffered hell on earth to make us citizens of heaven, watch and wait for him, dear believer, and keep going until you see him face to face, are fully transformed into his glorious image, and dwell in the place he prepares for us. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.